Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Well, hello to all of you who are here in person, those of you, many people who joined online. It's a great day to be alive in the United States of America in spite of all of the challenges in the world. Heavy dose of reality and optimism is in store for all of us today. I, in particular, on behalf of all of us at Heritage, want to thank the members of the Washington Diplomatic Corps for being here, for your service, always, but especially we know what's going on in the world today, not just in Europe, obviously, but around the world. We're grateful for your service. Yes, round of applause for you. Thank you. <laughs> Heritage has been holding the BC lect Lee Lecture on Asia Policy for more than 25 years. This lecture series would not be possible without support from the Samsung Corporation and the family of BC Lee. Byung Chul Lee, the founder of Samsung, was a true visionary, I would argue, in world history. With this series of lectures, he wanted to focus his friends in America on strategic interests in the Asia Pacific. If you would, please join me in applause for his memory and the great work of our friends at Samsung. Now for the reality. Today's event, we're focusing on the greatest threat to American interests, and I would argue the greatest threat to the interest of freedom and flourishing in the world, and that is the Chinese Communist Party. I also, of course, have to acknowledge something that's very much in the minds of those of us in the United States today, on the minds of those of us around the world, and that's the plight of the people of Ukraine. The connection of China and Russia vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine, and of course, around the world, is very clear. What you know from the Heritage Foundation over our 49-year history is that we call a spade a spade, but we do so with smiles on our faces, thinking toward a much more optimistic future. So in spite of the challenges, I know that Secretary Pompeo will cover in his address and that he and I will cover in our question and answer session. And those that you may ask during audience Q&A, we are going to conclude with an optimistic vision. And we're optimistic because we know that freedom is imprinted on each of our souls, regardless of where we're from, regardless of how we appear, regardless of the language we speak. And we know that a free world, of course, is in the future. But in a very special way, our thoughts and prayers and gratitude are with the people of Ukraine and their courageous president who addressed our Congress today, President Zelensky. How about a round of applause and support for them? The lesson is we need to work with allies, both in China's immediate neighborhood and beyond, to prevent China from jeopardizing the prosperity, liberty, and security of us all. Just as B.C. Lee sought to keep heritage and the United States focused on Asia, we need to keep our allies focused on the threats from the Chinese Communist Party. We're so pleased to have with us today former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Along with the terrific national security and foreign policy team assembled by President Trump, Secretary Pompeo brought major change to America's China policy. He has continued that in his service thereafter. Secretary Pompeo, with your remarks today, you'll follow a long line of foreign policy leaders which honor B.C. Lee, including several of your predecessors, Henry Kissinger, Colin Powell, and Condoleezza Rice. I and all of us at Heritage are pleased to consider you a friend 
and it is an honor to welcome you to the stage. Good afternoon, everyone. It's great to be with you. It's great to walk on the stage. Frankly, with this foot, you just saw it's great to walk anywhere uh, these days. Uh, Dr. Roberts, thank you for the kind introduction. It's great to be back on this historic stage at Heritage. Um, I, too, want to begin by uh, acknowledging B.C. Lee, who was one of the visionaries that founded an amazing company, a company whose technology, in fact, has helped change the world. He was president of the creation and became a clear voice for the unavoidable reality that the future of technology and innovation, indeed the future of the United States, economic and military security, is bound up with the future of the Indo-Pacific region. That's what I'm going to talk about, as Dr. Roberts uh, suggested. Uh, I've had the unique privilege just these last few weeks to travel to Asia once again. I traveled to Taiwan, something that I couldn't do as Secretary of State. Um, and to Singapore and to South Korea and to other places as well. These visits only con confirmed what it is that I had already seen. As I listened to these conversations in private, I could see that America must think about its role in the Indo-Pacific in a serious way and do so in a way that is deeply strategic. This is important to the people of the United States of America. We often think when we talk about the Indo-Pacific that we're focused on the people of that region. They, they, they are critical, they are central, they are much needed as partners and allies. But I want everyone listening today to understand that I think about this as how it is that we preserve and protect freedom and prosperity right here at home. They are deeply connected. Look, I could go through the whole list of Chinese malign activities. We'll get a chance to talk about that some today, whether it's the genocide that's taking place in Xinjiang, or the billions of dollars of steals from places like Iowa, where I was just this past week. Um, but instead, instead I want to focus on how we began to approach this, how we began to lay the cornerstone of a sound American strategy, and how we attempted to do so in a way that would be broadly acceptable to every element of the political West, bipartisan here in the United States, broadly accepted by Europeans, and executable by those who believe in human dignity who live in Southeast Asia and Asia as well. Look, we, 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 did, we did this in a way. I, I was an unconventional diplomat. I'm the only Secretary of State who ever ran a machine shop in Kansas, uh, likely to be so throughout all of recorded history. Uh, we, we, we confronted the Chinese Communist Party as we did in the Trump administration uh, just about every day. We did so not confronting what we wished we were up against, but recognizing the reality. We did it with candor. We wanted to build coalitions, but we wanted to make sure that that multilateral institution was actually functional, working, and serving the ends which it purported to serve in its charter. And we did so with an understanding that if we had a re reciprocal set of relationships with every one of our partners, then indeed the world would be more safe, more secure, and individuals throughout the world could live with more solitude and peace. So that meant we renegotiated deals that we didn't think made any sense. We rallied our allies to confront the CCP and its predatory economic practices. We declared what people had known for a long time, that there was actually genocide, not only having taken place, but ongoing inside of China. And we sanctioned CCP officials, the first administration to do so in a long time, for engaging in these massive human rights violations. And then we did the hard power work 
of building out American strength, increasing the defense budget, and making sure that those resources were trained on this central objective of our time, making sure that we were prepared in the Indo-Pacific to confront Chinese powerful military aggression. I worked an awful lot on making sure our partners understood not only what our intention was, but why it was we wanted to do it, why it made sense for them to work alongside of us. We reinforced and built on the Quad. I'm thrilled that the Biden administration has continued to do that with Japan and India and Australia. This is the kind of partnership that can give courage to nations all throughout the region to confront what is a very difficult actor, a very powerful political actor in their own region. We wanted to make sure, at its core, that this was a place where nations could prosper side by side as sovereign independent states. And we did so by deepening our economic relationships with the ASEAN countries, one by one, singly, delivering better economic outcomes for the United States of America and for each of those countries. This work was not original in the sense that we built on existing partnerships, but for the first time, for the first time, our national security strategy acknowledged what we all have come to accept. We've come to accept the central proposition that whatever the merits of what happened in 1972, the effort to buy more trinkets, sell more stuff, be a little bit closer and engage, and we might convince the leadership of China to behave in a way that was more consistent with individual human dignity, that it just didn't pan out that way. There's no fault to be attributed. There's no blame to be assigned. There's no one who should be ashamed of this. The only ones who should have fault or be ashamed are those who won't recognize that it just didn't work and aren't prepared to confront it in a serious way today. You know, today I'm giving what is at least the third most important speech. Within the last eight or nine hours, we saw what President Zelensky said to our Congress here at home. We've listened to President Biden's response. I applaud them for the $800 million in security assistance that they're going to provide to the Ukrainian people. We need to make sure that we continue to focus on things that present the next risk of the next great war and the next great challenge to human dignity, Western civilization, and our way of life here at home. We see in Ukraine what happens when you're in the muddy middle, when there's ambiguity, when the bad guys in the world don't exactly know how the West will respond. There is risk that they will miscalculate. When I was in Taiwan now just a little over a week ago, it became very clear to me that one of the central features of making sure that Taiwan has the capacity to defend itself is the world recognizing what we all know to be true. Right? We all know there's a simple truth. It is not part of China. That if it became part of China, this wouldn't be reunification. This would be an aggressive action that destroyed the sovereignty of an independent country. And for an awfully long time, the West has moved away from this under coercive threats from the Chinese Communist Party. And no leaders in the West have been prepared to say the simple fact, which is that this is an independent sovereign nation and we ought to help it protect its own sovereignty. I think it is time that the United States do so. As we saw the troops massed on the Ukrainian border, the Taiwanese saw the Chinese Communist Party continue to build its power. She talks about hiding his strength and biding his time. He may be observing Ukraine and saying he needs to bide a bit more time. But there's no chance that he's going to hide his strength or diminish his attempts to increase it. They watched. She watched. She watched what happened in Afghanistan. He saw the United States not take the simple task of making sure that it protected what it had fought for for 20 years and then watched us applaud 
when we united, we in the West united, only after there had been enormous suffering and devastation inside of Ukraine. As she thinks about what the world will look like when this particular confrontation comes to its conclusion, he must surely wonder if he won't get one free pass, one free bite at the apple before the West begins to protect sovereign nations in the region. We cannot let that be the case. You know, Taiwan's unique in that it is one of the few countries that has managed through all of the chaos of the Wuhan virus to grow its economy five years running. They're fully capable of securing and defending their own nation and making the cost calculus for Xi look really, really challenging. Most certainly, too, she must be wondering if his generals are lying to him as well. We need to make sure that they're lying to him. We need to make sure that the Taiwanese people, who will be prepared to fight and defend their own nation, have the tools and resources that they need. You know, we in the United States for a long time wouldn't do so much as let emissaries, diplomats from Taiwan meet with State Department officials without enormous rules, without enormous restrictions. We were afraid to raise our head above the parapet for a simple meeting with diplomats from a sovereign nation. It's unconscionable. And so it took me 994 of my 1,000 days as Secretary of State to get it done. More on that perhaps when we talk to Dr. Roberts. But it was the right solution. And, you know, I can't remember how many Chinese diplomats squawked at me. Uh, but in the end, I think they recognized that we had taken a step that made sense for the world and reflected reality, and the true impact was almost zero. Oh, you could argue the impact was something. At noon on January 20th, I was sanctioned by the Chinese Communist Party uh, about 30 seconds after. In fact, it's a funny story. My son is engaged to a young lady named Rachel. And Rachel called me at about 2 o'clock in the afternoon and said, uh, Mr. Pompeo, am I marrying into the sanctions regime? <laughs> I will leave heritage lawyers to figure out if Rachel is free and clear or she's part of the problem. Uh, now, I mentioned the man for whom this series is named B.C. Lee. Uh, that peninsula nation has developed from the ashes of the Korean War today into a very powerful and vital ally of the United States of America and has vital economic interests there that are important to the people of the United States. It's one of the reasons that we work so diligently to try, we didn't get all the way, to try to convince Chairman Kim that his nuclear weapons pose more of a threat to him than they did a security blanket. And we made some progress. We got him to commit to ceasing nuclear testing and no longer conduct long-range missile tests. We were close to getting him to dismantle what would have been a significant facility, but ultimately he chose a different path. But I think it's mindful and lessons that I learned when I was with Chairman Kim Chairman Kim, I would say, tell me what it would look like if America pulled its troops from South Korea. What would that, tell me what that would mean to you, essentially inviting him to tell me what the trade might be. And he would smile. He would smile and say, hmm, I'm, I'm not particularly interested in that. Yeah, suggesting somehow that he didn't want to tell me how important it really was. But as we developed our relationship more fully, what became very clear is he views the United States of America on the Korean Peninsula as a bulwark against his real threat, which came from Xi Jinping. He knew that having American troops there were the counterbalance, not only for the South Koreans, not only for the Japanese, not only for the United States and our Western interests, but for him as well. Think about that. There wasn't a single meeting that I had with Chairman Kim, nor that President Trump had in his three summits, where Chairman Kim didn't, in the immediate run-up to that meeting, spend time with Xi Jinping 
essentially taking his instructions. One could look at that and say, oh, they're working closely together. I think a more nuanced, better analysis is that Chairman Kim knows, just like the rest of us in the world know, that Xi Jinping threatens his sovereignty as well. That if he's to lose power, it is most likely not to come from the United States, not likely to come from South Korea, but because she concludes that a little more territory, a little more real estate, and a little less freedom on the Chinese border is something that the Chinese Communist Party needs. We need to look no further than Hong Kong or Tibet or Xinjiang to know that what Chairman Kim will what Xi Jinping will demand of Chairman Kim is total and complete subservience. We can't let that happen to any other corner of Southeast Asia. I'll close here. You know, I, I, even just yesterday, I was, I was told in the predicate to a question that the Trump administration walked away from our friends and allies, that we had abandoned the global pay, playing field, that somehow we were against multilateralism. <clears throat> I was in the administration all four years. I never saw that. What I saw instead was an effort to make these institutions functional, to make them work, to make them effective. It is, it is not of much value to have a NATO that refuses to spend money inside of their own country to protect themselves. It is not of much value to have a United Nations that is incapable of actually delivering on its commitments to the world. It is not of much value to have a World Health Organization that when the moment is called upon, the single thing, right? You know the old joke, right? You had one job, right? <laughs> you had one job which was to prevent global pandemic and at that moment you clutched out. You allowed Xi Jinping to drive your organization's behavior. No, what we were aiming for was not to destroy these institutions, but to take these institutions, most of which were created in the aftermath of World War II, and to make sure they were fit for purpose in today's times. And I close with this because to confront the Chinese Communist Party, these organizations and institutions will all have to meet the challenge of our times. We've seen Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General at NATO. He's much in the news these days. I came to admire him. He, I consider him a friend. In the uh, uh, middle of 2018, he and I spoke, and I reminded him that the historic importance of NATO, of course, was to confront the Soviet Union, and we had largely succeeded at that, and that NATO was still threatened by Russia. We knew that. We've now seen it and are experiencing it. But I reminded him that NATO was under attack from a friend and partner of Vladimir Putin as well, Xi Jinping. And we began to build out NATO's capabilities. We shouldn't take for granted that while there is distance between many NATO countries and the physical locality of China, there is no distance in the ideological divergence between the two mission sets. And so whether that's Chinese cyber attacks on NATO, Chinese capabilities from space and in the air, NATO too must be prepared to confront this next set of challenges. It is not limited to those countries that live in Southeast Asia to know that Xi Jinping has the intention of global hegemony. We all must be prepared and these institutions, these powerful multilateral organizations must be focused, they must be resourced, and they must fit the times that confront each and every one of us. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to be with you here today.